From KCRW, this is Greater LA. I'm Steve Chiotakis with the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. The avocado trees are just starting to bear fruit here on Soa Heart Farm in Fillmore. That's northwest of LA on California Highway 126. Farmer Molly Inglehart is showing us around. But I bet this tour doesn't look like what you're picturing in your head. Uh, the neighbor's farms are perfect rows of the exact same thing with bare soil underneath the trees managed by spraying uh, herbicides. And you can see that every inch of my farm is covered. In between the rows of avocado trees, she's growing peppers and garlic and broccoli and cauliflower. And all of these organic crops are covered with a thin layer of grass or clover. Her plots are messy mixes of more than 300 types of plants. Every inch is growing something. Anything that isn't is being patrolled by chickens and sheep who are eating the remains of recently harvested vegetables. Now this chaos makes for healthier food. But there's another reason Engelhart planted it like this. It's being heralded as a major climate change solution. Yeah, shifting what we plant and how we plant it could pull carbon out of the atmosphere. It's far from the norm in American farming, but if the federal government gets behind it this year, well, that could change. Here's KCRW's Kaylee Wells. There's actually a science to these lush, chaotic plots. Engelhart carefully picks what grows where so the plants work together to thrive. The fennel is actually an insectary, so the fennel is keeping the bugs off of the kale without spraying any pesticides or anything. Choosing carefully where plants go, along with some other things Engelhardt is doing here, like keeping the ground covered and hand harvesting, actually changes the soil the plants are growing in. And that's the key. Healthier dirt makes healthier food. Arohi Sharma at the Natural Resources Defense Council is a go-to expert on dirt. So soil is at the core of any food system, right? By diversifying what you grow, you're able to you're providing different kinds of nutrients to the soil. It's like diversifying our human diets. Nice perk, but the benefits don't stop there. Better dirt means more plants photosynthesizing, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, pulling it into their roots, and shoving it into the ground. That's how it can help with climate change. Sharma estimates if every farm in the U.S. operated this way, it'd remove so much carbon, it'd be like the equivalent impact of shutting down 64 coal plants. And of all of the, you know, 100 plus farmers and ranchers I've spoken with across the country, um, they've shared that healthy soil, soil health, that core nugget of regenerative agriculture is essentially their insurance policy against all the mercurial weathers of climate change. Regenerative agriculture. That's the buzzword for what Engelhart's doing. She sees even more benefits than carbon capture. Not only are we sequestering carbon, I'm recharging the aquifer far more than the neighbor is. And the water filtering through my soil is clean, has no glyphosate, has no Roundup, has none of that. In Engelhart's case in drought-ridden Southern California, that's meant creating soil that soaks up whatever water it gets. After the giant storms last month, her dirt roads were just lakes, but her plots were just soft and damp. 
even though we had six inches of rain in the last two days, that water has all infiltrated into the ground. There's in no field, in no greenhouse do you see standing water. It's only on the roads where the soil is compacted. Engelhart's vision of making earth-friendly food didn't start with the farm. She founded Sage, which is the local chain of vegan restaurants in Agora, Echo Park, Culver City, and Pasadena. And then about 10 years ago, she listened to a TED Talk about regenerative agriculture. I was blown away and why it isn't like the forefront of every single conversation. Why are we still talking about solar panels every single conversation when this is so much more powerful tool and there's no kids in Africa mining precious metals for the batteries? Like, why are we not having this conversation? So whenever celebrities or anyone who could help her would eat at her restaurants, she'd stop by their tables and try convincing them to buy a farm. The idea was they'd practice regenerative agriculture, she'd serve their food at her restaurants, and she'd give them her leftovers as compost. No one went for it. Engelhart just couldn't figure out how to finance this dream because her husband was undocumented, and then she lost her healthy eating, exercising best friend to cancer in 2018. And then one day... I was like, I guess I have to do this myself. Nobody's going to do this. Like, you're the one you're waiting for. And so I just decided we were going to do it. She started looking for a farm and bought 46 acres in Fillmore. She's been at this for four years now, and she studied regenerative agriculture practices in the wee hours of the morning while caring for her newborn babies. I've had babies back to back, and so I have a lot of hours of the night to research (laughs) while I'm breastfeeding babies. Uh, So I literally just learned, I mean, I just learned by making mistakes and Uh, that's how I did it. Now she says she grows more food per acre than the conventional farms next door. But four years in, she still hasn't turned a profit. But you can't expect to be making money right away Mm -hmm. in any business. The guy down the street, the first four years he had lemons and avocados planted, he certainly wasn't making money either. Right now, less than 1% of farmland worldwide is farmed this way. Why not more? It's an overhaul of... Our, our food and agricultural system, which is rooted so deeply in our commodities, in our subsidies, in our insurance policies, in our financial system. Jesse Smith works for the White Buffalo Land Trust, which is a farm just north of Santa Barbara that does trainings and courses on regenerative agriculture. He sees the same problem Sharma sees. From the 1970s onwards, um, decades of agricultural policy have prioritized unsustainable farming practices over regenerative ones. Right now, if you're a corn farmer who had a bad year, you claim the loss on that crop and the government helps you out. If you grow corn and soy, you write a couple claims. Now think of Engelhart, who grows 300 different crops. It's a lot harder for them to write an insurance policy or claim insurance rewards because of just the number of crops that they have to keep track of. Plus, even if a farmer grows more food, they'd need to pay for more labor because mechanical harvesting harms the soil. And convincing a farmer who's currently turning a profit that they won't make money for a few years is a tough sell. But Smith says he's seen an increase in people coming to the farm for their regenerative agriculture trainings and courses. We had, you know, cowboys from the Midwest to young up and coming farmers from, you know, the inner cities to grandparents looking to figure out what to do with their property to people who don't have land looking to get into agriculture to people who are in, you know, computer um, 
programming, figuring out how to put their skills in service of natural ecosystems. So it's such a broad range of people. So far, that growing interest is from people like Engelhart, who are operating on dozens of acres. It's not the thousands of acres devoted to Smucker's Jam or Cutie's Mandarin Oranges. But Sharma's optimistic regenerative agriculture could soon become more mainstream. Because the Farm Bill, which is the legislation that determines the fate of farming livelihoods in the U.S., gets reauthorized roughly every five years. And this year, it's getting rewritten again. Members of Congress's Agriculture Committee are focused on it now. So folks in D.C. are already starting to to think about what they want to see changed in the Farm Bill. So the fact that we're talking about soil health, the fact that we're having hearings on regenerative agriculture is a huge step in the right direction. While those discussions continue, people like Engelhart try to appeal to people's better nature. I was living in a golf course estates in Granada Hills with a swimming pool and had a good job and security, and now I don't have any of that kind of security. But I'm trying to do something to make a difference in a profound way. Putting the health of her land and her soil first and hoping the money will follow. For KCRW, I'm Kaylee Wells. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. Meanwhile, speaking of soil, with some showers in the forecast for this weekend, L.A. Public Works officials are keeping an eye on it, on all that dirt and soil and the reservoirs and dams in the San Gabriel Mountains. Those basins are filled to the brim right now, and not just with water, but millions of cubic feet of mud and wilderness debris. What if there's another heavy rainstorm this wet season? Does that mean those reservoirs above cities such as Arcadia, Sierra Madre, Pacoima, Sunland, Sun Valley... Are they in danger of overflowing? L.A.'s Department of Public Works is in charge of the water infrastructure. They can release some of that water to lessen the risk of flooding happening downslope. And it's all a part of a dam problem, pun intended. Mark Pastrella Mm -hmm. is director of public works for the county of L.A., and he's here to explain. Hi, Mark. Hi, Steve. How are you today? I'm I'm okay. Um, And, you know, keeping an eye on the weather, just like you guys are, and the system Mm -hmm. of dams and reservoirs up in the San Gabriels is pretty extensive. Give us a a sense of the size of this network and and when those dams were built. Sure. You know, uh, the county of Los Angeles um, operates 14 major dams, regulated by federal and state regulations and our own um, provisions. It keeps them safe and keeps them operating in a a manner that protects the public. Uh, Those dams are spread, as you mentioned earlier, across the whole complex of the San Gabriel Mountains, and they they protect the greater Los Angeles area from debris. And they also do this other wonderful thing by capturing stormwater and providing almost two-thirds of the drinking water supply for the San Gabriel Valley and about 20% of the, the drinking water supply for uh, the Los Angeles area. 
I wonder why, Mark, you know, these reservoirs are at capacity right now because, I mean, there's a lot of mud and debris in there as well. It's sort of clogging some things up, right? How did we how did we get to this point, though, I mean, with all the mud and debris? Sure. Well, actually, it's a little bit of a, an over overstatement that they're clogged, so I have to be clear about that. We This is a natural system um, of sedimentation into reservoirs. If you think about um, all the major reservoirs in the world, um, they, as a part of the flows that come into their system, they also capture sediment, and it's separated, as you said earlier, um, by a, a system, a valve system that leaves the sediment behind and allows the water to, to go on its safe way through the system to be captured or be released for flood protection. What's interesting right now and what you're picking up in the news cycle is that we have seen an accelerated deposition of sediment and debris into a number of these reservoirs behind the dams. And there's a direct nexus to climate and that's because climate is causing um, the fire cycle to occur uh, more frequently. So we've had more fires, which uh, loosens up the soil, creates a lot of fallen debris, trees and other large debris that it loosens up and then as we get, you know, this rain or normal rain events or maybe even extreme rain events, it pushes that sediment um, into the reservoir. Like I said, it's a natural, natural cycle and the dams and reservoirs are designed and operated to accommodate that. But what's interesting or different maybe in recent years is we've seen the need to clean these uh, reservoirs up at a more at a more frequent pace. I mean, fires and heavy rains are are, are you know not new in Southern California. Was were these dams, these reservoirs, were they built with those things in mind, or has the climate changed so much that you have to think about this stuff? It's it's a really good question, and I appreciate it. So you mentioned earlier that regulation and operation of it is just really um, it's meeting the design that it was designed for, but we're just having to clean it out more often. And so that cleaning it out more often, you know what that means is more money, <laughs> more uh, often contracting to do it. And um, the good, good news is the advanced planning has been done and we're maintaining the system and we believe it will be, we can continue to maintain it. You know, the vice president visited us uh, last week, I believe it was, and um, I was really surprised, really delighted to see that the vice president and the administration understood the importance of these reservoirs. And actually, you know, committed to helping us out with um, designate, designating them and recognizing them as in very important um, part of the system that protects people from the effects of climate. Is that the so we're talking billions of dollars, right? That that are that are earmarked exactly for things like that in the West for for water projects that I would imagine includes reservoirs and dams, right? Yeah, for sure. I think what you hear um, the term that the public hears is storage being critical in the West that we need to have more storage so we can capture more water for drinking. And that's no different than for our reservoirs. That's essentially, as we talked earlier, the reservoir's capacity is actually its ability to store water. And so we we want to maintain that storage capacity uh, year in and year out. So one, we're ready for flooding, but also we're ready to capture more stormwater. The great news is this year, we've captured a tremendous amount of stormwater because we were prepared. And in fact, we've covered it. We've caught enough uh, rainwater to fill some 500 and 555 rose bowls filled, filled to the brim of stormwater. It's like enough water to supply more than a million people for one year. Um, and it's just a down payment on that drought that we've been experiencing. Again, I mean, the importance that I would like your your the listeners to know is we got to keep investing in this system. Well, what about those communities beneath, right, in the foothills yep. of the San Gabriels? Like I, I talked about Sunland and, and those other yeah. places, mm-hmm. you know, Arcadia, Sierra Madre, Pacoima. 
Yep. Should they feel threatened by, you know, this this these full to the brim reservoirs, dams that are one of which at least, at least one of them that are, you know, have this mud and sediment, sure. they could overflow. Let me explain, and I want to be very, very clear about this. There is no eminent danger to any of the communities mentioned or the other, you know, six million people who live and are protected by um, these reservoirs. There's no eminent danger whatsoever of them being flooded by a uh, dam overflow. In fact, we don't expect any of the dams, one, to break or to overflow due to any um, predictable or in the foreseeable future of rainfall. Well, when you talk about full, what we're saying is the reservoirs are filling up quicker than um, most people are used to, but that doesn't, that is not, um, you know, reducing our ability to control floods. In fact, they're, everyone's in really good shape. Now, the one that you mentioned that is like 80% full of debris. That's the Santa Anita one, right? That's the Santa Anita one. Yeah, Santa Anita. That one is um, certainly lost a lot of its capacity to capture stormwater, but it has not lost its capacity to control floods. Because what we do, Steve, is we just open the valve. (laughs) And we uh, get that valve open. Our storm boss in-house here... uh, is watching that in coordination with the Army Corps of Engineers. And what we do is we pass those flows on downstream in a regulated way as the storms come. So we, do, we are prioritizing the, that specific uh, reservoir uh, for clean-out. We'll begin the clean-out of that once we get through rainy season. There'll be a lot of activity there. Uh, residents there have been really good about understanding that they're going to be truck traffic um, because they understand the value of the water that we capture. So um, in partnership with the cities, you know, we're going to recapture this, the, the, the ability, so to speak, to capture stormwater for them. But again, it's really important that we get the news out to everyone that they're, they are safe, that we, the dams, they have been, we made a huge investment in their seismic, um, uh, their seismic strength, so ability to w- re- resist earthquake. And um, we have increased them over the years for their ability to capture stormwater. So this is why we're all in good shape because the communities have made this really very, very, very affordable investment, by the way, in their flood control system. I don't know if you know, but, it, you know, the average resident um, spends about $28 a year to maintain and operate this flood control system. And uh, we capture water and protect them with those that system. And so, I mean, that's about as cheap as I've heard lately for a utility. Mark Pastrella, Director of Public Works for the County of L.A. Mark, thanks for coming on and explaining this to us. We appreciate it. Sure. Thank you, Steve. Maybe you've seen videos of them, four-legged metal machines that move and jump eerily like a four-legged creature, like a dog, only with backward knees. Robot dogs have made headlines in New York and San Francisco as those police departments added them to their forces, or at least tried to. And now that may also include the LAPD. They come from a company called Boston Dynamics, where the slogan on their website says, quote, changing your idea of what robots can do. So what will those robots do? And will they do it in L.A.? John Rigardi is a writer and reporter for L.A. Magazine, where he's been covering all things Robot Rover, and he's here with us today to tell us all about them. Hi, John. Hey, Steve. Describe these robot dogs. I mean, I'm trying to... They have the backward knees. I know that. They look like flamingos, I think, from the legs down. But but, but what else do we know about these dogs? 
Well, there is no fur, and uh, you know, one of the most interesting things is that they technically refer to it not as a robot dog, but a quadruped unmanned ground vehicle. Of course, that's cumbersome, so Boston Dynamics refers to them as Spot, um, and they are described as a robot dog because they, you know, they are controlled, uh, you know, with a controller from a handler, but they do operate as an LAPD, uh, you know. Deputy Chief said the other day, it moves similar to a dog, and they are anticipated to be used in certain situations where it is, you know, believed to be unsafe for officers to go, such as when dealing with a barricaded suspect. So the LAPD has already taken this dog, this this robotic dog. The LAPD has not taken it yet, and this is where the controversy is arising. There is a proposed donation of the dog from the Los Angeles Police Foundation, an organization which supports the pol- the police department, and right now the city is deciding whether whether to accept that donation or not. That's why in this recent uh, LAMag.com article I wrote about, I described the controversy as it was going through a council committee as the committee members debated whether or not to accept the donation. Four members did say that they should accept it. One person said no. It will ultimately have to move to the full city council, but it's not within the department yet. What was that meeting like? I, I can't even, I mean, we're talking about robotic dogs, right? And things are a little obviously tense between the public and the police department in, 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 in a few ways. So what's going on? Well, you know, look, as I said, if you want to spark a frothy conversation in Los Angeles, there's two reliably evergreen topics, law enforcement and animals. This brought them together. Um, Steve, there was a long public comment period where dozens of people called in, said, do not accept this. There were complaints, you know, fears, concerns that this would lead to a, quote, militarization of the Los Angeles Police Department. There were concerns about surveillance. There were a lot of people who said, hey, this will be unfairly deployed in black and brown communities. A caller after caller urged them to say no. Now, the Los Angeles Police Department representative, you know, came in and, you know, really tried to assure people that, you know, that this is not how they're going to be uh, deployed. Um, You know, they said, quote, under no circumstances will SPOT be equipped with any weapon systems. Um, They said there will not be any facial recognition software. They tried to describe the specific instances, uh, you know, in which SPOT would be utilized. I mean, you know, to use a cliche, they plan to keep SPOT on a very tight leash if he is accepted. Oh, yeah. These robots, John, have been donated to other police departments as well, as I mentioned, New York and San Francisco. How were they received in those places? Again, the same arguments against it? Um, yeah, I mean, that we are what we are seeing in Los Angeles is very similar to the controversies that we have seen in other cities. Um, a spot-type dog was rolled out in New York in 2020, um, but there was a fierce backlash later, and the New York Police Department had to return a device. Uh, just in December, there was a huge uproar in San Francisco that even actually ended with the Board of Supervisors formally voting to prohibit police from allowing any kind of robot, not just a robot dog, but any kind of robot from killing a crime suspect. So, you know, what we're seeing in Los Angeles, Steve, very similar to what we're seeing in other, you know, large metropolitan cities. It exemplifies the divide between those who do not trust the department and how it uses technology and the people who are, you know, ardent supporters of law enforcement. How would it kill somebody? 
Uh, and I'm not sure how it would kill somebody. I think in the San Francisco case, they might have actually been talking about different kinds of robots. But, you know, look, I know, you know, I know this is, you know, a bit of a jump, but there were references to the famous 2017 Black Mirror episode Metalhead in which there is a robot dog where, you know, it's advanced beyond what Spot would be today. So maybe that's what cons- people are concerned about. The Public Safety Committee did vote four to one to accept the robot, right? This gift from Boston Dynamics. But it still has to go before the entire city council, right? So what what does it look like going forward? Uh, you know, Steve, what I think we're going to find out is that once it gets to the full city council, and I've not checked the agenda recently, so I'm not sure if it's coming, but I think we're going to find, again, a stark divide. Uh, we've certainly seen that, uh, you know, Hugo Soto Martinez, a new council member, uh, he was the lone dissenting vote before the council committee. I think we're going to find some other members of the city council who will also vote against it for the same concerns, including a lack of trust in the department. But, you know, this is a city council that even with some of the changes still probably seems like they are likely to ultimately vote, you know, in favor of this. I would be surprised if it is rejected when it does finally appear before the full council. John Rigardi, writer, reporter for LA Magazine. John, as always, thanks for coming on and and talking with us about it. Thanks for having me, Steve. Going to do it for us today. Next week on GLA, there's a charter school that's co-located on the Baldwin Hills School campus causing an intense debate. We're going to talk about it coming up. Off to a listening table in Hermosa Beach where you can step up, sit down, and gab about pretty much anything. That's next week as well. And you can anytime share your thoughts with us, maybe even share a story and grab the podcast anytime, kcrw.com slash GLA. And always know that you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Just search KCRW Greater LA. Juliana Mayo, Nihar Patel, Sonia Geis, Phil Richard, Sue Margulies, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Mike Vogel, and Christian Bordal all put time and ears into this evening's episode. I'm Steve Chiatakis. Thank you for your ears. Have a great night.